Welcome to episode 24 of Exceeding Expectations. My guest this week is a lady by the name of Sydney Wong, and it's the second time we've visited the shores of Canada. Sydney is a venture capitalist, and so in this episode, we're going to find out a lot more about what exactly happens in the world of venture capital. So we're here for another edition of Exceeding Expectations and today I am speaking with a lady called Sydney Wong. How are you, Sydney? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. That's okay. And you're over in Montreal in Canada. Yes, yes I am. And I imagine it's very hot here, uh, hot there at this time of year. No, oh my gosh. It's <laughs> probably colder than the Antarctic right now. It is freezing every other day. And so what temperature is it right now? Um, I think it's minus 20 today. Oh, that's, wow. Okay. And, and it's kind of, you were saying before we started recording, it's, it's like that for a few months. It's like that for like eight months. Um, that's what I tell people when they say, do you, do, I, I want to move to Montreal? Because we have one of our interns who was thinking about relocating here from Morocco. And I'm like, you do know what you're getting into, right? So wow. yeah, it's, it's eight months. Wow. And we complain about the weather here in London. It's nothing like that. No. <laughs> I don't think it's ever in the history of the UK been as low as a temperature as that. So. Could you imagine if that did happen just for a whole day, what would happen in your city? Oh, well, we, we um, almost break down when we have an inch <laughs> of snow. So. <laughs> so, yeah, you. I was you know reading some stuff about you and I saw the interesting story about when you, you went to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you want, do you want to tell, tell us about that? Yeah, so um, I was working in uh, marketing and tech, um, in, in automation specifically, and I had a friend who said if I was very interested in learning more about the tech startup world, then I had to move over to Silicon Valley. So within about 10 days of him saying that, I bought a one-way ticket and I flew down there and I moved in with him. And um, and then that's how I I got the inspiration um, for for Venture X, which is a platform that helps connect startups and investors. It was because I was so inspired from talking to all the different Uber drivers, um, going to different meetups, talking to uh, dog walkers on WEG and Task Rabbiters, and understanding that they had a very structured and focused approach to entrepreneurship. And I wanted to see how startup um, can change. So. The funding industry within startup has been an industry that has been so old and it has not changed in many generations now. And it's really time to innovate this industry and make more startups more successful. And so what was it got you curious about? I mean, before you had that conversation, were you already interested in that sort of, you know, the whole kind of startup arena? Yeah. So I've always believed when I was um, young that, and, and just starting out as in my career, that everything that you choose to spend your free time on is where your true passion lies. So what I mean by that is outside of my nine to five, outside of my, you know, um, consulting agency and um, working in corporate and all these things, what did I do outside of nine to five? Well, I love to work out. I love to cook. And I also loved going to startup events. So even though I didn't need the money, I was writing business plans and helping out with grants and using my business knowledge from my time at uh, McGill University and my MBA in Paris to work on all of these things for startup companies because I wanted to. 
I didn't even know why mm. I was doing it. I knew that they needed help and I knew that I could do it. So I wrote grants for like eight years um, before I was realizing who I was helping. And it's interesting. The reason that people start up things is because they are finding out a passion of what they want to do. They're scratching their own itch or they are realizing who they want to help. And that's where my passion came in, which was realizing who I wanted to help. That's how I got into startup. And um, the, the rest was just kind of seeing how there was a fit when I went to Silicon Valley. And so typically when you're working with startups, what um, is there like sort of common problems most of them have or what, how is it you work with them? Yeah. So um, how the platform works is that they sign up and then we track their business metrics. So this includes financial runway, which is how many months they have left before they die. Um, conversion, which is how many prospects are converting into leads and then converting into sales. And engagement, which is a combination of retention and usage. So these key metrics are key things that um, seed stage startups, which are the ones that we work with anyway, tend to have. And they don't have a lot of things to report on because they never had a financial history. They don't have, you know, mm -hmm. lifetime values or cost of customer acquisition necessarily. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And um, so they sign on, they put in their business metrics. And then what's unique is that they get to see um, who they are being compared against, not exactly who in terms of the specific companies, but who in terms of the numbers, the macro information in the industry. So when they go in to pitch and ask for money, they already know if they're doing above or below the threshold in certain key metrics. And these key metrics are scoring them to see their likelihood of health and accessibility and viability for the um, for the, for the investors as well. So it works on both ways, but it's using their data in order to best match them and save time on both sides. And is that, do you concentrate on any particular industries or is it sort of quite varied? So because I come from um, software, it is mostly software, different niches, okay. but um, based, uh, but mostly focused on software. And so when you went to Silicon Valley, how different was it you know, going there than what you had been doing previously? So going to Silicon Valley was a huge change. Um, it felt like a different world. It felt like, because I, I, I mean, I live in Canada and we have Uber eight years after it comes out. We still have payphones, right. which is awesome. And <laughs> I don't know who uses them, but we have them everywhere. And, um, and then going to um, Silicon Valley was, was so interesting. I'll tell you a story. My roommate or the person who offered to um to to host me which was my roommate um after we came out from yoga one day he told me he was like the bus is late can you check on your phone on twitter um this is the name of the of the bus company i'm like why would i check on twitter and he said well if there's an accident or something they would have tweeted about by now i mean it was late for like four minutes seriously that's what he means by it was late you know and <laughs> and so that conversation taught me so much to him, information was a right. To me, mm -hmm. the speed of information and technology was a privilege. And mm -hmm. I told this to, um, you know, the VP of technology at one of the big banks here in Canada when he asked me, what do you think is missing in technology in Canada? And I looked him in the face and I said, technology, that's what I think is missing. And I told him that um, for me to fill out um, a, a government form, it was for, it was for my company, uh, VentureX. I had to go to a building and wait in line, get a form, 
and like wait for a really long time. And then I have to go to another building in the city, get it signed. And then I bring it back to the first building to hand it in. This all could have been done online, but they just don't even update the website, let alone, you know, Twitter. So Twitter was a huge right because I, it was a right to them. They just expected it, but it was a, it was a privilege that I don't even have this access um, online necessarily uh, for basic government forms that, that I'm looking for. So this took four hours of my time, you know? Wow. And um, so th- those are huge differences. And that's kind of the kind of thing that I mean when I say I get to see what the world could be. I get to see what my country will be. And I would love to be in the forefront working on that, creating disruption and also being around like-minded people that are um, very inspiring. You know, if you ask somebody anything about their day, um, they will tell you everything about their, about their day. But I feel mm-hmm. like you can learn um, anything that you want from people that you meet. And I hope that I've, I hope that I was able to bring that mentality to all the other countries that I've lived in as well. I hope that that's what people say. How long did you stay in Silicon Valley? Um, about four months, I think, until my visa had uh, said to get out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you talked about that lesson or, you know, what you learned just from that little episode with the bus. Yeah. But I mean, was there any other sort of major things that, that changed your way of thinking? Um, yeah. So I also saw the world in a different way when I walked to meet one of my girlfriends who, I, who did my MBA with me in Paris. So she is American from San Francisco and we were meeting together for lunch and she said, just walk down, uh, I think it was mission street and I will meet you, um, at the station. So I said, okay. So I walked down, it's not a long walk, maybe 20 minutes. I have, by the time I was 26 years old, I have traveled to about 26 countries, um, including many, many third world countries. I saw more homeless people there on the street on that one street than I have seen in most third world countries. And that was huge Mm. for me. So it was amongst the place that was super high tech, um, very shocking. And at the same time, people who were working at cafes or working as a policeman or working as firemen, they couldn't afford to live indoors. And that was a huge shocker to me of how the wage gap was so big there and how I'm afraid it would be so big in all other major cities as we go towards the difference um, between, you know, people who worked for the cities uh, versus people who are working in high tech or any other, you know, um, preferred industry in your major cities. And it was really surprising. I was watching I was watching the news and, and hearing about people being pushed out um, onto the streets because the banks or mortgage or whoever owned their homes were highly encouraging them to leave so then it could be put up for higher rent or higher sales. Um, so that's something that I also learned. And it's kind of when you were that young in your, in your mid twenties, you were really at, you know, um, a fork road in your life, like every day. So you mm. are deciding which route you're going to take and what you're going to do about these things. It, it sounds like, so you, it changed how you went ahead or what you decided you were going to do in the future. Yeah. So, um, I came back to, to, um, Canada and I, I started venture X it's accessible for everyone, which is great. And in my own time, I've also wanted to um, give back a lot to the community, which, um, I did as a part of a lead console, um, as a, it's a group called internation. So it's kind of like meetup.com except 
it's German. And um, I, I lead a volunteer group of about 600 people. So once a week, whoever wants to join, um, joins me in a kitchen where we make food uh, up to 500 portions and distribute them to people living on the streets in our communities. So I did that every Sunday for the past three years. But I would have thought in this, in a, you know, in, at the start of the show, we were talking about the weather in Montreal and <laughs> with the with the temperatures you have, you surely can't have homeless people there. We do. Uh, there are quite a few shelters. Um, I know that for a fact that uh, this organization that I'm working with, they distribute to at least two shelters. Um, each one would have over 150 beds. I believe. Obviously, there's not people living on the street. So, yeah, so people are in shelter because it would just be too cold to live on the streets in Montreal, I would imagine. Yeah, some people, they like sleep inside the, the metros, which is your underground. With all that you learned when you were in, in uh, Silicon Valley and from your MBA and so on. So what, what is it you're doing now? So right now, um, what I'm doing is I'm still working um, on building out the second side of the platform. So I'm going back to Silicon Valley tomorrow, actually, for the TechCrunch conference. Um, I will be visiting the Facebook campus and uh, meeting up with my um, friends and colleagues from Google. And um, and at the TechCrunch conference, um, we will be establishing new relationships as well as just maintaining our existing relationships with the different investors and building out the investor's side of the platform. So right now what we have launched is a startup side of the platform and the rest we do manually as a service. And um, for the investor side, it's all customized and 100% service. We want to build that out so it will be a little bit more automated and um, provide extra value. And do you, is there any sort of particular businesses, industries that you prefer to work with? Um, I know you, you mentioned about the, um, the, yeah, the technology. Is, is that what you, you kind of prefer to deal with? I, I do. I'm very inspired by technology. Um, I'm going to uh, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in 2020. And I, I feel like it's a great way to go. But in technology, it's, it's almost... It's almost anything. It's almost anything that would affect um, everyday people and everyday lives. And I think that that's where the heart of it should be and where it could be going. Um, mm. But in terms of what people choose to do and how they're how they're using um, technology nowadays to better businesses or better lives or, or whatever, that is that is still completely up to them. There are a lot of interesting things that we have seen um, come out or try to come out. But in terms of what do people do and how they execute it is very, very different. For example, Uber existed before Uber. It was just a different mm -hmm. company run by a different person and it didn't work out. And then mm -hmm. Airbnb does did exist beforehand as well, and so on and so forth. So it's how you're executing and using this technology in um, in the different niches and how you're bettering them. But mm -hmm. I, I generally I think that there are there are trends that are rising and there are trends that are falling. I think that AI, robotics, and um, you know things that are very disruptive, things that are predicting the future are rising. Um, things that are falling would be, I would say, more on the consumer level um, applications because they are just very easy to build. But at the same time, mm. you need a lot, a lot, a lot of users for it to be very interesting to compete in the market these days. Do you go and search out these, these startups or do they come to you? 
A little bit of both. So um, I used to be very, very, very involved in um, a lot of different events and, and things like that here. I uh, wrote a blog post about if events are actually helping your business goals. Um, so I used to do a lot more outreach. And um, now I feel like the most effective ones are those um, through relationships, partnerships, word of mouth. So we have different partnerships, for example, with not only investors, but as well as um, other financial institutions where they get a lot of people that are just too early for them. So they turn them away, which is exactly why we serve this gap in the market, because they get turned away. And so um, we want to help them at the early stage. So they refer them to us. Um, so far, I found that to be the most effective ways. Um, and then, of course, happy customers referring you to other happy customers. That's always great. And so how is it you're able to help them in a way that maybe they don't expect? What is it you're able to do? So um, they don't expect exactly where they're going to fall when it comes to like lying on the, the dashboard and the graphs and things like that. They expect their startup to be at a certain level. And then when they see where everyone else is and they see what their metrics look like and they see all these things and they see what the questions are actually, um, they see a different story. And it's usually mm -hmm. not the story that they expected. So having a reality check and an assessment is, is number one. The second thing is that in the past couple of years, one of the key um, things that we had done, which at that time when I was doing it, I didn't know it was going to be um, a unique selling point, just like, you know, Airbnb didn't know the photos was going to sell super, super, super well, but it did. Mm. Um, was I went to every single conference and every single event. And I actually, when it came to pitch events, I wrote down every question from every judge. And I have a list of all of them that I've collected over the past two years. And I knew who was going to ask what and why they were going to ask what. So the reason that this was a key advantage was because this is not written anywhere. And um, mm. because nobody would do what I do. You do the work that no one else is going to do in order to have what no mm. one else is going to have, right? So yeah. why are we asking for, for these things? It's because I started to realize that, for example, some med tech investors are looking for at least... 20,000 plus um, cases when it comes to a clinical trial, but they would never say that on their, on their website. So you wouldn't know. Mm. And, um, and then some of them would only um, give you, give you investment if you had intellectual property or a patent or patent pending or those kinds of things. But who are mm. they? You don't know. So you have all of this preparation um, from us that you don't get beforehand. You have, um, a better understanding of where you actually stand in comparison to the other startups that this investor has already seen beforehand. So your preparation level and your chances of success is um, super, super high in comparison because you're not going in blind. And in addition, we also help you with your data room files. So we help you with your um, actual pitch, your PowerPoint pitch, and um, your presentation and your um, financials and all of these things that are part of your data room file and review them and check them over in order to make sure that they are optimal as to as to what they should be and um, and then provide the, the best matches with the investors. Eventually, our platform is going to be providing the best matches based off of the algorithm and the scoring mechanism, which we have. Do you concentrate on sort of startups in your local area or all over Canada or the States as well? So um, it's mostly North America at this time for both mm -hmm. sides. You mentioned, I think, was it you said you're doing about 200 different companies you've been helping? Yes, exactly. All of those are in technology, I, pres I presume? Yeah, all of those are in technology, uh, different levels, different stages, correct. 
Is there like a particular size or amount of money they need to be making in order for you to be attracted in the first place? How does that work? So that's a great question. Um, every investor will give you the same answer. It depends because, yeah, it probably mm. does. So before uh, we started this conversation, I told you that I was on another podcast where one of the other guests had 15 million users, right? Mm. And um, it was a free plat- a freemium platform for the most part. And so, of course, that is very, very, very attractive. And what they're telling you has to be a different story. So some investors will want it and some of them won't. So what we are learning is which ones require it and which ones don't because they don't really necessarily tell you on their website. It's really um, a trial and error because at the same time, it's to their advantage that they are not missing anybody. They don't want to miss mm. on, on you know the first Uber or the first the first one investing in Airbnb or the, you know, the next whatever. So they, uh, they do want to, to be able to see them. Um, but they, they also, it's, it's a person. So they do also have their criteria that they are looking for. And that's what they would say if they, um, if, if the deal didn't go through, for example, and that's kind of how you learn and how you build up your database and build up your information over time. You, you mentioned before we started recording, you've been nominated for the uh, the Women of Influence Award. How, how did that come about? What did you need to do for that? Oh, yeah. So um, so this would be the second award that I was nominated for in the past uh, year. So last mm. year, um, I, was, I came in second place. Um, because a female CEO who's a who's a colleague of mine and a great supporter of of women entrepreneurs so she is out in BC as well which is where I'm originally from so um she nominated me for the um, women entrepreneur of the year award from startup canada so that was last year and then this year uh she nominated me again for the um RBC women of influence awards so that is great it's it celebrates several categories of women and um, RBC is I think Canada's most valuable brand I heard recently um, so mm-hmm. it's Royal Bank of Canada and they have several awards of women who are at different stages in their business so the stage that I'm in is um, uh, I think it's called ones to watch or rising star it's one of those two names and um, right. just a great honor to be to be nominated and I saw um the press from the previous years. It looks amazing. Um, these other women are super inspirational and they're so accomplished in their fields. One of them was, um, a, a doctor in, I believe, I believe, uh, fertility. And, um, mm-hmm. so she was, uh, one of the winners from, for one of the categories of last year. And it was just so amazing to, to see and, and to, to be there to, to celebrate, um, the success that women entrepreneurs have, come about in the past decade there's obviously i would imagine people doing a a similar thing to what you're doing what is it you do that's different to to the others so we are building a scalable um technology platform um the the main competitors in our field uh there are two main different categories so one of them is a regular broker so it's manual it's not scalable you cannot help Mm -hmm. everyone in north america you can mainly just help people in your own city so those are individuals Mm -hmm. who usually have a financial background um or a legal background or both and they are called brokers. So they they finance these kinds of deals and um, they work off of a very different kind of financial structure basis. And then um, the other ones would be 
they are databases. So they would be PitchBook or Gust, for example. And um, we, and so what they do is that they cost a lot of money. They cost something like up to $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And um, it gives you access the same way that Crunchbase gives you access, except Crunchbase is free. Um, but it helps you um, put together information and what was just raised, what was just closed, and from who, who was the lead, and who was the founder, and their different profile information. So information that is public and open, but they put it together um, in an easy-to-read way. But what they don't do is that they don't match you. They don't give you access to each other. They don't close the gap in the market. They sell information. Um, And then I believe one of them sells information of startup data to whoever, uh, whoever buys it. So your information could be sold to a competitive VC or a competitor of, of yours, you know, and that also happens because it's, it is legal. And that is their business model um, for for some of these kinds of databases. So those are things that we don't do because we are essentially a marketplace and we are an algorithm that scores and best tracks you to ensure that, you know, you are successful in this way. Before we started recording, you were talking about how you help some of the people you're working with in in terms of how they're doing their pitch and sort of communication and, and so on. Yeah, so exactly. So we um, first take a look at their their pitch. They usually already have one. We also can help them write one if they don't have one. Usually they've already had one. And, um, and then we allow them to understand what the pitch room would look like. So for a lot of people, for example, a common mistake is that they write everything so small. But when you're putting something on a big screen and there's eight other people in the room or four other people in the room, you're in a big conference room and they can't actually see everything that is important or they're supposed to be seeing. So that is a really big um, common mistake that that happens. So we try and get them to understand and visualize and practice exactly the way that you would when you're on the stage or when you're on Skype or whatever, but imagine what the audience is and who they are and what they're going to look like and what they do. And then the other ones would be um, your your customer information, your letters of intent, those kinds of things. So we make sure that um, all of those are in place and in one place because a lot of the time is wasted on asking for more documents and um, more back and forth, a lot of uh, due diligence that just goes back and forth because they just don't have everything. And um, it's a it's a very negative experience for for both sides because it could be very like, you know, long and drawn out, and it could weigh a lot on um, the the make or break of a startup if they don't um, get everything in time. The title of this podcast is Exceeding Expectations. What are your thoughts on that whole area and why maybe you should go out of your way to, to try to give the people you're working with an incredible experience? There's a lot of different ways that you can always offer to help. So, Giving people the going out of your way to give your customers experiences, especially when you're starting out as an entrepreneur, is where you're going to actually learn the most. And it seems like it's just going to take you more time. However, on the flip side, you may be building something that has four features, but only one of those features are the ones that your customers are coming back for. So you might want to actually take more time, understand why they only want that one feature, understand how you can build around it, how you can advance it. And that's your real flagship. It has nothing to do with the other four. You just spent so much money making the other, you know, the other three or four features or whatever. And so listening to your customers going out, uh, out of the box, spending time with them. I spent a lot of time with them 
um, and and seeing what their true values and true needs are is really hard to do. It's also really important that the founders do it and not kind of outsource it to anybody else because that's your that's your core knowledge. That's why you are you, you know, and it has to do with how you have related to your customers first. I think it was um, Warren Buffett who always said that it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. So if you Mm. think about it, you'll do things differently. So if there's any one Mm. part of a strained relationship that you currently have with your customers, see it not as a problem, but as an opportunity. Ask them out for a beer, you know, take them out to lunch. See what it is that um, you can do better or more or refer them to to anybody or get to the root of the problem because they're going to be your customers. And if they're your first ones, um, it's going to help you shape a lot of your of your company and help you build out a lot of your customer mission if you allow them to. Before we finish, what would you, if people want to find out more about you, where, where would they go to? Um, our website is the best place. So there is a contact us form on our website. It's www.venturex.ca. So we hope that you would write us and we hope that you come visit. And um, yeah, we always get back to you within 24 hours. The platform you were talking about, all the information about that is on there as well. Absolutely. There's also a demo video that you can see right on the homepage. Okay, Sydney, it's been it's been a pleasure speaking to you. And I hope it doesn't get too cold out there. Well, it can't get can it get much colder than minus twenty? It could. It really could. It could. Oh God, I don't envy you at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your time, Sydney. Thank you. Next week, episode 25, I speak with Nicholas Bryce, who provides speakers for conferences and so on. And they really try to challenge the way that people think. And he tells a fascinating story of the way they were able to help Brighton Football Club. That definitely is worth tuning in for. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy it, why not leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Overcast or any other podcast player? And maybe think about joining the Facebook group, which is called, funnily enough, Exceeding Expectations. Start a conversation in there. Ask a question. Um, maybe there was something that you, you know, your opinion on one of the guests or one of the subjects raised. It would be great to hear from you. And have a great week and I'll see you next week.